You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 96th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. During our coverage of the war so far, Rich and I have already taken y'all west to Kentucky and Tennessee and even Missouri, but this week we're going to take y'all still farther to the west. The 1861-62 Confederate invasion of the territory of New Mexico was the westernmost military campaign of the Civil War. But even while the campaign was in progress, it received scant attention. With the exception of the Texans, the eyes of most of the people in the North and the South were focused closer to home on the battlefields of the war's eastern theaters. But out in the far west, in the southwest, Two hard-fought battles and several minor engagements took place in what is now the state of New Mexico, and that fighting was an important and dramatic part of the Civil War. The stakes involved in the Confederate invasion of New Mexico were high. Some historians believe that what was at stake was nothing less than a Confederate version of Manifest Destiny. On July 5, 1861, upon the recommendation of Jefferson Davis, Henry Hopkins Sibley was commissioned a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. Shortly before that, in May of 1861, Sibley, a native of Louisiana, was a major serving in the U.S. Army, and he was stationed in New Mexico. But he resigned his commission in May in order to offer his services to the South. Shortly afterward, he traveled east to the new Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, and briefed the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, on his plan to invade and occupy New Mexico. Jefferson Davis approved Sibley's scheme and gave him a commission, along with the authority to raise a brigade of mounted volunteers in Texas. Jefferson Davis's orders to Sibley entrusted him with driving the Federals from New Mexico, but according to one of Sibley's officers, his plans actually went far beyond his written orders. In his book, The Battle of Glorietta, Union Victory in the West, Don E. Alberts writes, quote, General Sibley actually planned a much more ambitious campaign, the details of which he may or may not have shared with President Davis. According to Sibley's trusted artillery chief, Trevanian T. Teal, the new general intended to march northward after taking New Mexico capture the rich mines of Colorado Territory, then march westward through Salt Lake City and across the mountains and deserts, finally to occupy the Southern California seaports of San Diego and Los Angeles. 
By one stroke, with a minimal force and living off the land and its sparse population, Sibley would bring the entire present-day Southwest under Confederate control. End quote. The historian Alvin M. Josephy Jr. opened his book, The Civil War in the American West, with the following story. Quote, in the spring of 1861, Christopher Kit Carson resigned his government job as agent for several Indian tribes and put on the blue uniform of a lieutenant colonel of a United States 1st New Mexico Volunteer Infantry Regiment. Soon, a typical story was being told about him. Typical because few people knew or cared whether it was exactly the truth. It fit Carson's heroic frontier image, and that was all that mattered. In the sun-baked plaza of his hometown of Taos, southern sympathizers had pulled down the stars and stripes and hoisted a Confederate flag. The usually unruffled kit turned red with anger. Summoning friends, he nailed the American flag to a long cottonwood pole and ordered it raised and the rebel stars and bars hauled down. Taos had been Union since the United States had won the territory from Mexico in 1848, and he declared with his hand on his gun it would stay Union. End quote. But, as dramatic as that story is, it would not be as simple as that, as simple as just declaring that Taos, the rest of New Mexico, and other regions of the Southwest would remain in the Union. The Federals would have to fight for the huge area. In fact, as Josephy goes on to point out, within months, Kit Carson would lead New Mexicans in battle against an invading Confederate army. At the start of the Civil War, the West might still be largely empty and unexplored. Only 5 million Americans, or 14% of the population, lived beyond the Mississippi River in 1861, but the vast region was nevertheless an enormous prize. Controlling even a portion of the Trans-Mississippi West, the southern tier of territory running through Arkansas and Texas out to the Pacific coast, would give the Confederacy great advantages in the conflict that was just beginning. Rich mentioned how, at the start of the Civil War, only about 14% of the U.S. population lived west of the Mississippi, and of those four-fifths were concentrated in Missouri and the other states east of the Great Plains. In the far west, 380,000 people lived in California and 52,500 in Oregon. The rest, some 250,000 in all, were scattered in small frontier settlements or bustling mining districts or a few widely separated territorial centers like Denver, Salt Lake City, and Santa Fe. In addition, some 10,000 officers and men, almost three-quarters of the entire peacetime U.S. Army, were based in small detachments at more than 60 federal posts and forts spread thinly across the West, from the Rio Grande to Puget Sound. If we narrow our focus to New Mexico, we find that in 1860 the territory had a population of 100,000. The territory of New Mexico consisted of the present-day states of New Mexico and Arizona, plus the southern tip of Nevada. The territory had been organized out of land the United States gained in 1848, after the end of her war with Mexico. From its eastern boundary with Texas, the territory stretched west to the Colorado River. It was bounded by Mexico on the south and the territories of Colorado and Utah on the north. 
The portion of this area that would eventually become the state of New Mexico included pine forests and alpine meadows in the northern mountains and vast expanses of dry, trackless desert in the south. New Mexico was really only accessible from the east by two routes. From the north, specifically from Missouri, the Santa Fe Trail crossed Kansas and cut through the territory of Colorado before entering northeastern New Mexico and continuing on some 200 miles to Santa Fe. And then there was the Overland Mail Company's southern route, which connected San Antonio, Texas, with the west coast through the western Texas and southern New Mexico. Between these two major routes was the old Spanish and Mexican Camino Real, or Royal Road, which came out of Mexico, crossed the Overland Mail Route at present-day El Paso, and continued northward along the valley of the Rio Grande to meet the Santa Fe Trail at its namesake village. These roads and the vital water of the Rio Grande were the physical factors that defined the course of military operations in the sparsely settled and arid region. It's important to remember that in 1861, at the beginning of the Civil War, railroads had not yet come to the territory of New Mexico. In fact, it would be 20 years before the railroad made its first appearance in this part of the Southwest. Another technological achievement that made an impact on the war back east, the telegraph, was also missing from New Mexico at this time. The telegraph would not arrive in New Mexico until 1864. In 1862, at the time of the two major battles we'll discuss in this story arc, the nearest telegraph station was several hundred miles away in Julesburg, Colorado. As for the people of New Mexico, in the north around Santa Fe, the white settlers had commercial ties to Kansas City and the Midwest, and they were, by and large, anti-slavery in sentiment. The Anglo population in southern New Mexico, on the other hand, were mostly Southerners, and they reflected Texas and the other slave states in their outlook. In the years before the Civil War, they began referring to the southern half of New Mexico as Arizona, and repeatedly petitioned the U.S. Congress to organize the area into a separate territory. When Congress repeatedly dashed their hopes, it led to much resentment among the region's southern-born Anglos, and in subsequent years, voters elected Southern sympathizers to the territorial government. In 1859, although New Mexico had only 85 blacks in its population, the territorial legislature passed a slave code, and New Mexico appeared to be drifting into the pro-slavery camp. The bulk of New Mexico's native Hispanic population lived in the northern half of the territory. In his book, The Battle of Glorieta, Union Victory in the West, Don Alberts explains, quote, Having been citizens of the United States for only some 14 years since the Mexican War, the Hispanic natives tended to have minimal loyalty to or interest in the federal government and essentially no interest in the great issue of slavery that had brought on the Civil War. However, while there was no overriding issue uniting them behind the Union effort, they were in agreement on one particular feeling that resulted from prior experiences of invasion and racial insults. They detested Texans. And in New Mexico, Texans comprised the invading Confederate Army. End quote.
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Texan interest in invading the territory of New Mexico began during the early months of the Civil War. Back in 1859, Texans had elected Sam Houston governor for the third time, and during the autumn of 1860 and the tension-filled build-up to the presidential election, the aging hero had argued for the preservation of the Union, but then in the weeks following Abraham Lincoln's election, the secessionists in Texas steadily gained strength even as Houston lost influence. When the governor refused to give in to the bullying of the secessionists, when they demanded he call a special session of the legislature to organize a convention that would take Texas out of the Union, they simply issued their own call for the election of delegates to a secession convention. The delegates would be chosen on January 8, 1861, and the convention would assemble on January 28th. The election of convention delegates was held on January 8th, and with unionists either boycotting the vote or failing to organize in time to oppose it, the result was that when the convention met in Austin on January 28th, it was composed almost entirely of diehard secessionists. And so it was no surprise when on February 1st, the convention adopted an ordinance of secession by the overwhelming vote of 166 to 8. But before this, Sam Houston had managed to convince the legislature that any decision of the convention be submitted to a popular referendum before it could take effect. And so the question of whether to ratify the ordinance of secession was to be set before the voters of Texas on February 23rd. But the secessionists decided not to wait for the popular referendum, and so the day after the convention adopted the Ordinance of Secession, the delegates met in a secret session and authorized the formation of a Committee of Public Safety, which would preside over the seizure of all federal property within Texas. And then one further piece of business was dealt with in the secret session, the sending of a delegation to Montgomery, Alabama, where representatives from the seceded states were meeting to discuss the formation of a provisional Confederate government. And with that taken care of, the Texas Secession Convention adjourned. In his book, The Civil War in the American West, Alvin Josephy writes, quote, The state boiled with excitement. 
John R. Baylor, a hot-headed frontier Indian fighter and center of past controversies over his ruthless treatment of the tribes, had already advertised in newspapers for 1,000 armed men to join him for a great buffalo hunting expedition on the plains. Rumor had it that his real purpose was to regain New Mexico for Texas, or perhaps even seize the federal arsenal in San Antonio. That city, the state's largest, with a population of about 8,200, was the headquarters of the U.S. Army's Department of Texas, commanded by Brevet Major General David E. Twiggs, a crotchety 71-year-old Georgian. One of the four highest-ranking officers in the Army, Twiggs had had a distinguished military career. He drank heavily, was intemperate and spiteful toward his subordinates, and at times spoke openly of his sympathy for the secessionists. End quote. By February 9th, the Texas Committee of Public Safety had appointed a three-man commission to meet with General Twiggs and demand that he surrender all of the federal posts, government property, and military supplies in the state. Several times in December 1860, Twiggs had asked the War Department what he should do if the Texans demanded he turn over federal property to them, but he never received a clear answer. Probably because General-in-Chief Winfield Scott assumed that a veteran general officer like Twiggs knew that it was his duty to use every means to defend government property as long as he wore the uniform of the United States. But Twiggs had actually already decided on his reply to the Texans. Earlier in 1860, he had told friends that a breakup of the Union was coming and that he would surrender government property in his department to the Texans whenever it was demanded. And so when the Texas Committee of Public Safety sent a widely respected Mexican war hero, an experienced Indian fighter and Texas ranger, Ben McCulloch, with a force of a thousand men into San Antonio to add muscle to the committee's demand that Twiggs surrender the government property, Twiggs readily gave in. Ben McCulloch's name should be familiar to you guys from our previous discussion of the Battle of Wilson's Creek in Missouri. And then just as a footnote to what happened in San Antonio, although Twiggs gladly submitted to McCulloch, the general's headquarters guard, a detachment of men from the 8th U.S. Infantry, showed more backbone. The soldiers refused to be disarmed, and with colors flying and their band playing patriotic tunes, they marched out to an encampment on the edge of town. But despite the loyalty to the Union of the overwhelming majority of the rank-and-file federal soldiers stationed in Texas, as department commander, it was Twiggs who had the last word on the subject of surrender. Turning to Alvin Josephy again, in The Civil War in the American West, he writes, quote, On February 18th, the same day when Jefferson Davis in Montgomery was sworn in as president of the Confederacy, Two weeks before Lincoln's inauguration in Washington, and almost two months before the fall of Fort Sumter, Twiggs signed a formal document of capitulation. Turned over to Texas were all federal buildings, property, supplies, and military stores, as well as all 19 government forts and posts in the state. Some 2,500 officers and men of the 1st, 3rd, and 8th U.S. Infantry Regiments the 2nd Cavalry, and the 1st Artillery, mostly deployed along the Rio Grande and defending Texas's 1,000-mile-long Indian frontier, were offered safe conduct from the state. Notified that they could keep their small arms, camp equipment, and clothing, 
they were directed to evacuate their posts and march to the Gulf Coast for transportation to eastern ports. Twiggs himself packed up and left for New Orleans. End quote. The Texas Committee of Public Safety insisted that all federal troops leave by way of the coast since that measure would prevent a military buildup in New Mexico by the soldiers as they pulled out of the Lone Star State. On March 1st, Twiggs was formally dismissed from the U.S. Army, quote, for his treachery to the flag of his country, end quote. He subsequently accepted a commission as a major general in the new Confederate Army and was placed in command of all of Louisiana and the southern parts of Mississippi and Alabama with headquarters in New Orleans. But such duty proved too much for a man his age, and he was relieved at his own request in October 1861. The following July, Twiggs died in his home state of Georgia, honored by the Confederacy but scorned in the North as a traitor. On February 23, 1861, Texas voters ratified the Ordinance of Secession, 46,100 to 14,600. On March 2, the Lone Star State was accepted into the Confederacy. Sam Houston refused to accept this turn of events, arguing that the Confederacy was a rebellion against the United States. But when the Secession Convention reassembled, it simply ignored his opposition and ruled on March 16th that all state officials, including the governor, would have to take an oath of allegiance to the Confederate States of America. That day, Houston remained in his office in the Capitol building, whittling on a piece of wood, while upstairs at the oath-taking ceremony, they called his name three times. When the defiant governor failed to appear, the convention declared his office vacant and named the lieutenant governor the state's new chief executive. Sam Houston retired to private life with his family and died in Huntsville, Texas, in July 1863. For the task of securing the abandoned federal posts in the more remote south and west parts of the state, the Secession Convention created two regiments of cavalry. The first regiment of Texas Mounted Rifles was commanded by Ben McCulloch's brother Henry, while the second regiment was led by Colonel Rip Ford. Ford took four of the regiment's companies and established a watch over the lower Rio Grande, while his second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel John Baylor, headed west to secure a number of abandoned federal posts, including Fort Bliss, near El Paso, in far western Texas, over 500 miles from San Antonio. Many of the men in Baylor's command were volunteers he had raised for his buffalo hunt. John Robert Baylor was born in Kentucky in 1822, the son of an army doctor. When his father went to serve in the Indian Territory with the 7th U.S. Infantry, Baylor was sent east to attend school in Cincinnati. When word reached Cincinnati of the Texas Revolution of 1835, the 13-year-old Baylor, yearning for adventure, ran away and tried to make his way to war, but a concerned traveler intervened and returned the boy to school. But in 1840, after the death of his father, the now 17-year-old Baylor abandoned his formal education and went to Texas, settling on a farm owned by his uncle. He participated in some of the campaigns against Mexico, but always just missed actual combat. 
1842, still restless, Baylor moved to the Indian Territory where he taught school at the Creek Agency. A year later, however, he was implicated in the murder of a traitor and he fled, returning to Texas. After that, Baylor settled down. He married, started a family, and began to raise livestock. In the early 1850s, he was admitted to the bar, served a term in the state legislature, and then received an appointment as an agent to a Comanche reservation on the Brazos River. But his tenure there was plagued by controversy over financial irregularities and his harsh treatment of the Indians, and the state eventually dismissed him. Baylor and his brother George subsequently became some of the leading persecutors of the reservation Indians. In 1859, Baylor organized more than 350 men in an effort to oust the Indians from the reservation and relocate them to the Indian Territory. He did this on his own initiative and without government authorization. And then, as already been mentioned, during the secession crisis in Texas in early 1861, Baylor advertised in newspapers for 1,000 armed men to join him for a great buffalo hunting expedition on the plains, which was a not-so-clever cover story to disguise his real aim of preparing to wage war against the Federals, either in Texas or over in New Mexico. When Texas commissioned Baylor, a lieutenant colonel in the 2nd Regiment of Texas Mounted Rifles, many of the men under his command were volunteers he had raised for his buffalo hunt. On March 16, 1861, Confederate Colonel Earl Van Dorn arrived in San Antonio to take command of the Confederacy's new Department of Texas. Van Dorn formally mustered most of the Texas state troops into the Confederate service, and it was Van Dorn who in May ordered Baylor to lead a battalion of the 2nd Mounted Rifles west toward distant El Paso and Fort Bliss. With the withdrawal of the Federal Army from West Texas after Twig's surrender, the state's frontier was left unguarded, vulnerable both to hostile action by Indians and to any advance a Union force might make from New Mexico. And so it was to provide security for the frontier that Van Dorn sent Baylor west. But with regard to Fort Bliss, Van Dorn apparently had more in mind than defense. He knew that federal troops were stationed at Fort Fillmore in the New Mexico Territory, just 40 miles north of Fort Bliss, so Van Dorn authorized Baylor to take the offensive and attack Fort Fillmore, thereby providing an added measure of safety for El Paso and Fort Bliss. Baylor's force left San Antonio a thousand strong and advanced westward across Texas using the Overland Mail Route, garrisoning abandoned federal posts along the way, but the nearly 600-mile journey to Fort Bliss was a difficult one, and soon short rations and the blistering heat began to take their toll. By the time the force reached El Paso the first week of July, only about 400 men remained in the ranks. Many had deserted along the way, while others had succumbed to illness, heat exhaustion, or simple fatigue. Baylor established his headquarters at Fort Bliss, and despite the fact that more than half of his force had melted away on the journey west, he was eager for a fight, and he immediately began to plan an attack on Fort Fillmore. Baylor, like Van Dorn, feared that Fillmore might be used as a staging point for a federal move into Texas, so Baylor decided to move north along the Rio Grande and attack the fort before its 700-man garrison could receive reinforcements. And so on July 23rd, Baylor set off with less than 300 men to invade New Mexico. 
At midnight the next day, the 24th, Baylor's force approached Fort Fillmore and positioned themselves to capture the post's horses when they were taken to the river for water in the morning. Doing so, Baylor felt sure, would force the garrison to come out into the open and fight. Unfortunately for Baylor, one of his men deserted during the night and warned the fort's commander, Major Isaac Lind, of the Texans' presence. With the element of surprise gone, Baylor withdrew his men a short distance, crossed the Rio Grande, and entered the town of Mesilla. The gray-bearded 55-year-old Lind was an experienced officer, a veteran with more than 34 years of service in the U.S. Army, but here at Fort Fillmore, even though he had the advantage of numbers and position, he proved to be utterly incapable of coping with the threat presented by Baylor's undersized invasion force. After sallying out of the fort with most of the garrison, crossing the river, and making a feeble, clumsy effort to drive the outnumbered Texans out of Mesilla, Lind broke off the fight and ordered his men back to the safety of the fort. Baylor thought the Federals were trying to lure him into a trap, so he made no attempt to pursue them. But the next morning, when the Federals didn't renew their attack on the town, Baylor sent out a scouting party that discovered the enemy was holed up in Fort Fillmore. When Baylor started to make preparations to attack the fort, Lynn became convinced he couldn't hold Fillmore, and so he made up his mind to evacuate the place that night. Since the Confederates in Mesilla blocked the road along the Rio Grande to Fort Craig, Lynn decided to retreat on a road that led to Fort Stanton, 140 miles across the desert to the northeast. In the chaos of packing up and preparing to evacuate the fort, some of the Federal soldiers managed to break into the post stock of medicinal whiskey and fill their canteens with it. Considering the grueling march that lay before them, it was the worst thing they could have done. Lind ordered Fort Fillmore evacuated at 1 a.m. on the morning of July 27th, and during the remainder of the night, his men made good progress along the desert road. But after the sun rose, the heat of the morning and the lack of water made worse by the whiskey, which merely increased the men's thirst, all combined to take a terrible toll. Under the blazing July sun, scores of Federals fell by the wayside, unable to continue the march. Meanwhile, that morning, a little after dawn, Baylor's scouts informed him that Fort Fillmore had been abandoned, and he quickly ordered his men to set off in pursuit of the retreating Federals. Soon after setting out, the Texans started to come across the Federal stragglers strung out in total disorder along the road. Baylor reported that, quote, The road for five miles was lined with the fainting, famished soldiers who threw down their arms as we passed and begged for water, end quote. Lind and the main body of his force had managed to reach a spring that was along the road, but when the Texans came riding up and Lind tried to form his infantry into line of battle, only a hundred men responded. And with that being the sum total of his effort to fend off the Confederates, Lind meekly surrendered his entire command to Baylor. And so fewer than 300 Texans captured more than 500 Federals without a shot being fired. Besides being a stunning tactical victory, Baylor's seizure of Fort Fillmore and capture of Lind's command had, in effect, begun the conquest of the American Southwest for the Confederacy. With the exception of the isolated garrison up at Fort Craig, halfway between Mesilla and Albuquerque, all of southern New Mexico territory, from the Rio Grande to California, was free of federal troops. 
In the days that followed, although Baylor's Texans skirmished with Federals who probed south from Fort Craig, he knew his force was too small to continue the offensive, so for now, Baylor's buffalo hunt was over, and he settled in at Mesilla, where on August 1st, 1861, he issued a proclamation establishing the Confederate Territory of Arizona, including all of New Mexico south of the 34th parallel. Baylor named Mesilla as Arizona's capital and proclaimed himself the new territory's governor. While John Baylor was establishing and maintaining that easily achieved but still tenuous lodgment in New Mexico, he received word that a former U.S. Army officer who had served in the territory, Henry Hopkins Sibley, was now a brigadier general in the Confederate Army, and Sibley was at San Antonio, organizing a large new force of Texans to reinforce Baylor and expand the Confederate offensive into northern New Mexico. And that seems like a good place to stop this week, so we'll pick back up with the story right there next time. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Civil War in the American West by Alvin M. Josephy, Jr. Josephy's book provides us with an excellent examination of the history and drama of the Civil War west of the Mississippi. Um, It's very well written, and it's a marvel of economy in that in less than 500 pages, it covers the entire sweep of the war in the West, and yet it seems much more than a broad, generalized summary. You can find The Civil War in the American West by Alvin M. Josephy Jr. and all of our other book recommendations if you go to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Rich and I want to say thank you to everyone who has been leaving us those great five-star reviews on iTunes, and also to everyone who has liked us on Facebook lately and followed us on Twitter. We appreciate having y'all on board. And then Tracy and I want to send out a special thank you to Phil M. of New Mexico and to Doug C. of Virginia for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of y'all for joining us for this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we look at the Battle of Valverde. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.